Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. The playwright Arthur Miller, who was an award-winning playwright, wrote this about the observance of a play, people who are there when the play is unfolding. At some point, he says, there will come a moment, if the play is really a good play, well done, when the auditors will say, oh my God, that's me. Have you ever had that experience in watching a movie or watching a play? There's great drama in life, and the life of Jesus, the record of that life, is the most compelling of all dramas. It reaches its apex in what we call the passion of Christ. That begins when Jesus is betrayed by Judas, he's arrested, then he's sent to trial, really more than one trial, two trials, maybe three, depending on what your viewpoint on that is. And then, of course, there comes the denial in the context of the trial of Peter. And Peter, next to Jesus, is the man who gets the most attention by name in the Gospels. We've already read about him from Luke's Gospel. Each one of the Gospel writers talks about the denial of Christ by Peter. That tells me that there's much for us to gain. And quite frankly, that aspect of Peter is the one that I find myself most easy to identify with. So let's go to the Gospel of John. We've been studying the Gospel of John. And today we're going to be looking at the last three verses of John's Gospel. And also we will be looking at maybe all three accounts to some degree in Matthew the Gospel of Matthew 26 and Mark 14, Luke 22, as we've already seen in here in John chapter 13 and perhaps even chapter 18. So let's read the last three verses of John chapter 13. To get the context, perhaps we should begin with verse 31. We've already looked at this on a previous occasion. Verse 31 of John 13, When therefore He had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and will glorify Him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You shall seek Me. And as I said to the Jews, I now say to you also, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Let's just stop here a moment. It really created a dilemma for Peter if Peter were left out of any gathering of the disciples of Christ. He was the hub of the wheel of the disciples. I don't know if you've ever noticed it. 
When the Gospel writers describe the list of the apostles, Peter is always listed first. And in the Gospel of Matthew, we get some indication as to why, because he is described by Matthew, the Gospel writer, as the chief or the first of all the apostles. We don't know if Christ assigned that responsible position to him, but what we do know is, by the process of elimination, he rose to the top. He was a man that was the center of the disciples' lives and very close to Jesus, as were others for sure. He says, where I go, Jesus says to him, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a cock shall not crow until you deny me three times. I'm going to talk, first of all, about the factors which contributed to Peter's denying Christ. And we need to examine our lives to see if any of these factors are present in our lives. Because if they are, we need to acknowledge that, and we at the same time need to confess it to the Lord so that we can be the best follower of Jesus Christ. The first thing that I would draw our attention to is that Peter disagreed with Jesus. It was not mild disagreement. He was intensive in his disagreement of the Lord. It was hard for Peter to take no for an answer. He was contradicting Jesus one more time. Two times we've already encountered him contradicting Jesus. The first of which is at Caesarea Philippi when he asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter gave the right answer. The others did not have the proper answer. And the answer was, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus, you may remember, congratulated Simon Peter, and he said, Simon, son of John, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. And I can just see, you know, Peter kind of puffing up when he's hearing that. But obviously God is presenting this to you. He's revealing it to you. He contradicted him right after that when Jesus proceeded after congratulating him and began to tell the apostles that he was going to go under intense persecution and he would be killed by the religious leaders of Israel. And then, do you remember what Peter said? May it never be, Lord. You will not suffer like that. Jesus said it. And then what does Peter do? He contradicts what Jesus Christ has said. We saw not too long ago in the 13th chapter of John where Jesus is washing the feet of the apostles and he comes to Peter and Peter says, you're not going to wash my feet, no way. So here again, he's contradicting the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you beginning to see a pattern? Because here he contradicts Jesus. If we looked at the other gospel writers' description of that, it's really a, a clear description. He was saying, no, Lord, you're not going to die. You're not going to have that kind of experience. This is one of the things we need to understand. 
we are finding ourselves in a perilous condition if we take exception what Jesus Christ says. We are to follow Jesus. Peter, in his first epistle, makes allusion to the fact that we're to follow Jesus. He says this. He says, Christ has left us an example that we may walk in His footsteps. Jesus is our exemplar. In His call to discipleship, what does Jesus say? If anyone wishes to come after me, let him or her deny himself or herself, take up his or her cross daily and follow me and keep on following me. The order of the day for a disciple of Jesus Christ is to continually follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. Following his steps. Did Jesus give Peter and the others an example of an individual, albeit the God-man himself, of the importance of listening to God and then obeying. And remember, when Jesus was asked by Philip, one of the apostles, he, show us the Father, he says, and it will be enough for us. And what did Jesus say? Have I been so long with you, Philip, and you still do not know who I am. If you have seen me, you've seen the Father. So Jesus is God incarnate. God, a man become God. We can call him the God-man. So did Jesus give us any direction by his example in that regard? Not to argue with God. Yes, he did. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7, as an example, I could cite several other places. This is what we hear him say. I have come to do your will, O God. And we saw, if you'll just turn back quickly to the 12th chapter, in verse 49, the next to the last verse in the 12th chapter of John, he said, For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me commandment what to say and what to speak. If it was good for Jesus, I think it's good for us as His disciples. Would you agree? And so we, some more than others, have a tendency to want to debate Jesus, to defy Him in what He says, to disobey Him. We think we know better than Jesus Christ. Now that's absurd. We know that. None of us knows even a thimbleful as much as Jesus knows. But nevertheless, we have that tendency. So... Evaluate yourself by that. Do you embrace wholeheartedly those things which Jesus says? Do you have the confidence in Christ that allows you, even though it may not make sense, to recall what the Bible says about our God? Jesus included in that. In Isaiah 55, God says, My thoughts are higher than your thoughts, and my ways than your ways. And we need to listen to what the Lord says and do what He says to trust Him in that regard. Peter, to this point at least, was having a hard time trusting Jesus in the big moments of the disciples and Christ's life. In this moment, nearing the Passion especially. And we don't need to be too hard on Peter. He did love Jesus. I have no question about that. He loved Him but he had a distorted way 
of relating to him and had yet to learn really the importance of trusting Jesus implicitly. So the first thing we see, he disagrees. What's that reflective of, by the way? To disagree with God? Wow. That's reflected of pride, isn't it? Was he a proud person? Well, remember what I mentioned earlier? That he was considered the chief of the apostles? First of the apostles? That's what the Bible writers say under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he was the one who gave the right answers. We saw at Caesarea Philippi about the identity of Jesus. And so he was on a roll, as it were, and he began to take himself too seriously. And he puffed up. We know that the Bible tells us in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it tells us that let him who thinks he stand, let that person be careful, take heed so that you do not fall. Pride comes before fall, doesn't it? And this was the big issue with Peter, as it is for all of us. When we struggle with accepting what Christ has to say, and we think we know better, then it's an indication that we are in dangerous territory because of our pride. Beware of the attitude that says, I'll never do that. And I'm talking about in the area of sin. Some of you have done what I've done when I've seen people do things that are so-called Christian. I say, that'll never happen to me. Be very careful. Be very careful. Understand that we are not to condone sin in our lives or other people's lives. I'm not saying that we're to be soft on sin. The Bible is very explicit about we who are spiritual, when a brother is caught in a trespass, we're to go to that person, but how are we to restore the person? With gentleness is what the Bible says. With gentleness, kindness. Because that person was caught the word caught there is trapped. It was used of the trapping of small animals by setting a bait for them and trapping them. We're all responsible for our sin. But it's important to understand that Satan is one who not only lures us to sin, but he traps us, puts us in a situation that he knows probably will eventuate in our sinning. Pride. Was Jesus proud? No, he was not. In the sense of being independent of God? No, he was not such an individual. I think about Jesus' description by Paul in Philippians 2, and how Paul says, even though being in the very nature of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. Wow. He emptied himself. He didn't empty himself of his deity. He emptied himself of his rights to exercise his deity in his humanity. So Jesus gives us the example of a humble person, humble human being, so that we can walk in His steps. 
We can not disagree with God when God says something, like Peter is described as doing, and not to puff up with pride. We have the best example in our Savior, Jesus. Another thing that contributed to Peter's falling into a state of denying Jesus is a lack of prayer. We know Jesus shortly after he had told Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows in the morning. We know that this same Peter was invited by Jesus along with James and John, the inner circle of Jesus, to go into the Garden of Gethsemane. And what were Christ's words to them when they got there? Watch and pray, and the verb suggests keep on watching, keep on praying, so that you do not fall into temptation. No temptation has seized us who know Christ, except that which is common to man, including Jesus. He was tempted in every way as we are, the Bible says. Can you imagine? With greater intensity. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. Aren't you glad for the faithfulness of God? As I was waiting on the baptisms, I was thinking of a line. I could just hear it from the area behind. And I'm not going to get the words exactly as they should be quoted. But though our sins are many, your mercy is full or great. I can't remember what it said. But I thought about how important the mercy of God is to us. We saw from reading Luke 22, it was very important to Peter soon after he declared, I'm not going to let you down. These other bums may, but I'm not going to let you down, Jesus. He wanted to prove himself, but he proved Jesus right, not himself. We who know Jesus need to be men and women who realize that we're to pray without ceasing. And you say, well, Mike, how does that work? Well, I can only tell you how it works for me. I'm not on my knees praying consecutively all the time. There wouldn't be anything wrong with that necessarily. But as I go through the day, because of the relationship that has been provided for me, by Jesus, with the Father, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit speaks to me in my mind. I don't hear Him audibly, but people come into my mind. He reminds me of things I need to do that I had not thought of that day. And He directs me and guides me. And I can speak to Him while I'm listening to other people and be attentive to them, actually. And the, the thing that is good for us is we can pray in this way. We can have the presence of the Lord, realizing how important it is that even though we are indwelled by the Lord, Jesus, and by the Holy Spirit, we still have the capacity to follow the lure of the world and Satan. So here's a third thing. How's your prayer life? Are you a person who has daily time alone with the Lord in an unhurried private place, as it were, but also when you go out into your particular arena, at your home, if you have a spouse, and if you and your spouse have children, that's your first place that you are to put a priority. But then 
in your work. You are salt and light. And God wants to use you in your workplace. And do you pray for your superiors? Do you pray for your peers? If you manage people, do you pray for them? We have school teachers in the room and school's going to be, I hate to ruin your day to mention this, it's going to be starting right away, right? It's unbelievable. But praying for your students. God, I know you do put these people in such positions. And thank you if you're a Christian teacher and you have this kind of commitment to pray in your classroom. Here's another thing about Peter that we need to consider when it comes to why he failed the Lord, denied him. Jesus prayed a lot, didn't he? He was always listening to the Lord. He was always interceding for others, and he still does. He gives us an example. Here's the fourth thing. Peter had zeal. You know what that is? He was a fired up individual. But he had it without enough knowledge. He really did not know God as he would come to know God in a short time after what we read about him in this experience. He needed to know God more intimately, but he didn't know him like he thought he did. So he tried to make up for his lack of knowledge by being fired up, being zealous. The Bible says in Proverbs 18:2, it is not good to have zeal without knowledge or to be hasty and miss the way. Now notice the Bible does not say it's bad to have knowledge. It just says it's not good to have knowledge without what? I mean, zeal. It's not good to have zeal without knowledge. We need knowledge. And what kind of knowledge do we need? The kind of knowledge we need all over the New Testament and Old Testament is knowing God. Knowing Him. Be on intimate terms with God. And this dovetails and piggybacks on our being people who pray throughout the day. Because in that communion with Jesus, when we're in our cars or when we're just chilling sometime, what happens is we can have that kind of communion with Him. And we get to know Him more and more. Peter tried to make up for a lack of devotion to Jesus by being zealous. Where do we see this? You remember when Jesus was arrested? There was a servant of one of those who had come to arrest Jesus. His name was Malchus. One of the writers tells us. And what did Peter do? He had a dagger. And in typical zealous mode, he cut off Malchus' ear. Now that's a real man, isn't it? Got to defend my leader. And there's nothing wrong with self-defense or protecting other people. Jesus rebuked him, but not until Jesus had picked up maybe the part that he had lopped off of the ear, maybe the whole deal, and put it back on. Some say Jesus recreated, gave him a brand new ear. Some of us need that. I'm beginning to need that myself. A new ear, not what you see. They're getting bigger every day. I, I look at a picture every year and I, it is true, your ears and nose continue to grow all your life. It's unbelievable. But Malchus was touched by Jesus. But Peter was trying to work his way into better graces with the Lord, perhaps. Here's the fifth thing. There are many things, I'm only going to give you six, about factors which contribute 
to Peter's denying and by association contributes to ours. In Luke's Gospel, we saw that Peter, after he had abandoned Christ, he deserted Christ when Christ was arrested, just like all the other guys did. And he's going with John, probably, even though John is not named, it seems that would be the disciple in question that's described in Luke 22. And they're going to the courtyard of Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the current high priest, and there was going to be a trial about Jesus there to trump up charges against him so that he could be ultimately crucified. And so here he is, and he's going there. Maybe he's... This is speculative. There's nowhere in the Bible that says this, but it's my own sanctified imagination here. If I had been him, I'm talking about Peter, and I had made such a boast, I would have felt like, man, I blew it. But I'm going to prove to Jesus that what I said, that all these other people are going to desert you maybe, but you're not going to see me deserting you, Lord. And so he's going there to get close enough to Jesus. And maybe he had in his mind, he was going to help spring Jesus from that situation. We don't know. But he's trying to make up for what he had done, which was contradictory to what Jesus had said. He comes here and he follows Jesus as a distance. Do you know how dangerous it is? to follow Jesus from a distance. It's incredibly dangerous. We need to stay close to Him. Is that possible? Well, the Bible says draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Jesus says that I will never leave you nor forsake you. Here's the last thing. It's like the flip side of following Christ at a distance. He made friends with the world. Now, where does that come into play in the narrative about Jesus being denied by Peter? Well, you remember when he went into the courtyard of Caiaphas, he found himself warming himself in the chilly spring morning over a fire. And he was not the only one there. He was joining in with others, none of whom were followers of Jesus. But we see him there, and we know what the Bible says. In the book of James 4.4, it says, Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. We are not friends of God or friends of Christ if we are friends of the world. The two cannot stand together. Peter warmed himself by the fire. We see peer pressure being placed on him. This woman comes, a slave girl comes and says, are you not one of his followers? No, no, no. And then before long, a man shows up. What about you? And then someone shows up and the third time after he has denied Christ, what does he hear? The crowing of the rooster. Unbelievable. And all of a sudden, everything that Jesus had said about what he would do comes crashing down on him. And at that moment, Jesus is in the courtyard. And Peter looks toward Jesus and their eyes lock. Wouldn't you like to have been there to see exactly 
what were in the eyes of Jesus. I don't think Jesus was scowling at him. I think Jesus, he was not smiling, but it may be described this way, pain etched in love on the eyes of Jesus. Jesus does not condone sin. Remember the woman caught in adultery in chapter 8 of John? Did He condemn her? He did not condemn her. But did He condone her sin? He did not. In fact, He told her after all of her accusers had left, beginning with the oldest down to the youngest, what did He say? Go and sin no more. Jesus is looking at him. He's communicating with his eyes very much. So apply these tests. How do you do with this exam? This is one of the benefits of being a teacher of the Bible and going through a book of the Bible like this. I have to live with this a lot. You only have to listen to about 30 or 40 minutes of it on Sunday morning. But nevertheless, the Holy Spirit speaks to us, doesn't He? And he corrects us by the bad example of some people and also by the good example of Jesus. Now, here's something really important. It's all important, this text is. But this is really important. You and I, if we know Jesus, he's not just some personage, personage from history past. He's alive. This is the importance of the resurrection. And not only is He alive somewhere, He lives in you. And I, He lives in me if we know Him by the Spirit of God. And it is He who can help us to show loyalty to the Father and not fo follow from a distance and not be friends with the world and all the things that contributed to the downfall of the Apostle. So how... Is it possible for us? Well, it's the life of Christ in us, but we have to follow the example of Jesus one more way in order for the life of Jesus to be in us to its fullest. We looked in John 12 a little while ago. If we were to go back to John 12, 24, we hear Jesus say these things. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, the immediate context of this is Jesus is talking about himself, isn't he? But he's also speaking about those who follow him. In order for us to fulfill what God has given us to do, we need to die to ourselves. Going back to the call that Jesus makes in people's coming to be followers of His. He says, deny yourself. That word deny, by the way, that Jesus uses in Mark 8, for example, verse 34, where he says, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself. It's the exact word that the biblical writers, echoing what Jesus said, you're going to deny me. And what does this self-denial look like? What is it like? It's exactly like Peter telling three strangers when they challenged him, you're one of his followers, aren't you? He said, no, I never knew the man. 
I never knew him. I don't know him. That is a picture of denying. We have to deny ourselves. And how's that possible? We have to deal with our own flaws, do we not? We have to be honest, yes, we do. But what we need to understand is we are no longer obligated to be ruled by ourselves. What the Bible calls our flesh. It's, it's an option for us as followers of Jesus. Once we come to know Him, it's an option to ignore the Lord and to do what we want to do selfishly. Dying to myself means to refuse to depend on myself anymore. Jesus says in John 15, verse 5, He says, apart from me you can do nothing. Do you believe that? Do you take that seriously? Apart from Jesus, I can do nothing. Now, some people say nothing of consequence that's positive, nothing that's in the will of God. That would be true, but I take it rather literally. I trust the Lord to give me the power to do whatever I do when I'm at my best. You know me well enough to know that that's not true all the time if you've been around me very much. I'm not bragging about that part of it. I'm humbled by the fact that I do disobey the Lord in a way that is not honoring to Him at times. But we depend on Jesus for our lives. In the book of Colossians chapter 3, the Bible says in the fourth verse, it's almost in passing, it says that Christ who is your life, Paul writes to the Colossians, Christ who is your life. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is life. And He's come that we might have His life and have it abundantly. He is not in any way stingy about giving His life to you and me. He wants us to have access to His life and the power that comes to say no to ourselves in order that we may say yes to our Lord Jesus Christ and let Him work His life through us. Once more referring to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Peter writes this, Set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. Putting Jesus in first place, we need to do that checkup regularly and in fact do what it says. Jesus knew Peter suffered from overconfidence. He knew not only did Peter do that, Peter was not alone in his protestations about what was going to happen according to what Jesus said. He was not alone in denying Jesus, running away. They all did it. Peter was the guy. He was the main guy. He was the spokesman. And he spoke more loudly about his devotion to Christ than the others did evidently. But what we know is, Jesus said after telling the apostles, Peter, James, and John, keep watching and keep praying so that you do not fall into temptation. Then he says, for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is what? Weak. And the word weak literally means sick. My flesh, that's my personality, when it's exercised outside the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit. When I'm not trusting the Spirit of God to reproduce the life of Christ through me, 
then I can get off in a ditch in a hurry that does not represent anything about Jesus. But we need to understand we can live in victory in this way. Peter had not learned something else. He had not learned what it really meant to deny himself, but he had a huge lesson he had to undergo. That lesson was to learn the secret of God's grace. Now, could Jesus have stopped Peter from denying him? Well, of course he could. He could have done it. He says over there in Luke 22, what does he say? He says, Simon, Simon, Jesus says, Satan has gained permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, and when you return, strengthen your brothers. Wait a minute. Jesus is praying for him. He's interceding for him. Yet, he doesn't interfere with the denial. What are we to say to that? Well, one thing we can say, it's a fulfillment of prophecy for one thing. But in terms of Peter's personal life and our lives as we are Peter-like many times. We're like him because we default to the flesh. What we need to understand is that we have the capacity to go against what God would say and give in to our flesh. And the purpose of God in this, and there's great purpose, he knew Peter was not ready for the great assignment that he was going to receive. He knew Peter had to be broken. What do I mean by that? To be humbled. He needed to have a big piece of humble pie. And the way it came about was when he was so bold and brash, he just came in the room wherever he came and he took control of it. His ego was always on display probably in some way. But after he saw the eyes of Jesus. What does the scripture say? He wept. How did he weep? Bitterly. And he had some time to think that over. We're going to see if we finally get to the last of John, an encounter that he had with Jesus and how Jesus recommissioned him. It was neat. And he fulfilled after Jesus went back to heaven in the ascension, and a few weeks passed and Pentecost came and the Holy Spirit came upon Peter and 119 other disciples of Christ. And Peter preached the Pentecostal sermon. 3,000 people were saved in one afternoon or morning actually. It was still in the morning, 9 o'clock in the morning when they began to assemble. And amazing what God did through him. But that wasn't the only thing. He became the one who was the go-to guy for the whole church. And then other things we could allude to if time permitted. But what we know is that he needed to be broken. He needed to know what it meant to be inadequate in himself. Paul understood that. Paul and Peter are interesting, aren't they? Quite different in their gifting and so forth, but quite alike because of their flesh. And Paul was arrogant, just like Peter was. And he had his comeuppance, didn't he, on the road to Damascus. 
when the Lord knocked him off his horse or donkey or whatever he was riding, blinded him. And then what he says in Philippians 3 about all that, he said, everything I bet my life on, being the best of the best in Judaism, I call it just a dung heap is the terminology literally in the Greek. It's all loss. But he says also in 2 Timothy chapter 3, I do not have any adequacy, and he's talking about himself, and he includes his traveling companions. I find no adequacy, competency in myself because my adequacy comes from Christ. If you and I are adequate as followers of Christ, it's his life through us as we understand the imperative nature of denying ourselves, trusting in Him, leaning on Him. And the Lord will use us. As David was reading from Psalm 51, there's a verse, a line of one of the verses. I had never really paid enough attention to it, but it struck me just like this and saw the relevance to it. It says, The bones which you broke rejoice. David, in that penitential song, Psalm, it's unbelievable how contrite he was and how broken he was. He lived with the consequences. He was forgiven, but he lived with the consequences of his dalliance with Bathsheba and the consequent murder of her husband and 29 or 30 other warriors that served him so faithfully. He lived with the consequences of that, but he was given the grace of God. And Peter too knew the grace of God. The great people of the church are not necessarily obvious, but one thing that we could say is true of every person, obscure and well-known, and every person in between, the thing that we can say is true, that they have been broken by the Spirit of God. In love, God broke them. He disciplined them to show them their inability to do the things that Christ would have them to do. And to give up on themselves. You've got to give up on yourself in the sense of depending on yourself and transfer the trust from your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the grace of God. Paul says that he had a visit from Jesus asking Jesus three times. He asked Jesus, take this thorn out of my flesh. Take it out, take it out, take it out. And finally Jesus said, no more talk about that. My power is made perfect in weakness. Grace is the key, Jesus says. And what is grace? It's that which gives us entry into the family of God, for sure. But we have way too long kept the other aspect of grace in cold storage in evangelical life. And that is what Paul said to Timothy, you then, my son... Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, the grace is the power for living the life because Jesus is full of grace and He comes to live in us. And therefore, He gives us what we need to accomplish what He calls us to accomplish. I close with this apocryphal story. I don't know if it happened. It was meant to be a description of something happened. To Peter. Peter was feeling the heat in Rome and 
many Christians were being martyred. And so the story goes, he's getting out of Rome. And on his way out, he meets Jesus. And he says, Domine, quo vadis. Lord, where are you going? And so it's said by the writer of one of the books that's attributed to Peter, he says to him, I'm going to die. And of course, what did Peter do? He turned around, went back in, because he knew that Jesus was going to die for him again. And he was not going to let that happen. And he did what he knew was the right thing to do. Let's pray together. The challenge to you and me today is to die to ourselves in order that we may live the life that Jesus promised when He said, if a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it will bear much fruit. And that we know glorifies the Lord. Would you just say to the Lord, Lord, please help me to be a man, a woman, who understands, not just in my head, but in my heart, the importance of being fully committed and submitted to you by dying to myself and following you without reservation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.